kind of just still in Genesis. <laughs> so you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. And as you're doing that, I have a riddle for you. Never started a sermon with a riddle, but here we go. You ready? William, especially, I want to see if you can get this one, okay? All right. I have no medicine, but I can heal. I have no hands, but I can lift or place burdens. I have no army, but I can destroy nations. I can't be seen, but I can create worlds. What do you think, William? <laughs> That's a good answer. It's words. Sorry, I stole your thunder, Nicole. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's words. Words. Words are remarkably powerful things. It's funny, you know, I just finished a ninth cup of coffee this morning. I'm thankful we're this far apart because I've got coffee breath. But words are powerful, even with, you know, humans, like the absurdity of being a human with coffee breath, but preaching the word of God. Words are powerful, and he, God, is committed to doing remarkable things through words, even with coffee breath, <laughs> coffee breath words. Even these silly human words can do things like create new realities in a way. And you don't have to read Lord of the Rings to understand that. Um, think about this. Like words leave our mouths, they flow from our lips, from our pens, and then they go out and they do something in the world. They really do. The moment a word of promise crosses the threshold of my lips, I will be either a promise keeper or a promise breaker. But now there's no more indifference. There's no neutral zone anymore. That word was powerful. It did something in the world. Or the moment I say to one of my children, clean your room, that word leaves my mouth and it does something out there in the world. It creates a situation where now the child is either going to be obedient or not. But there's no being neutral because words do something out in the world. With our words, we interact with reality. And so words are powerful and they're what we would say performative. Not like they're performing, but they do something. They perform actions. And the same is true of God's word. The whole Bible teaches us that God's word is powerful and performative, like ours, or ours is like his. But there's one way that God's word is very much not like our words. God's word is personal. From our very first introduction to God in Genesis 1, we find out that God is a speaking God. He's a communicator. It's one of my favorite things about him. Because how can you get to know someone who doesn't talk? That's how humans are designed. That's one way we image God is by being communicators. So in Genesis 1, for instance, the phrase in Hebrew, God said is repeated 10 times, and by his utterances, he speaks reality into existence. In the rest of the Old Testament, just some form of the phrase God said or the Lord said occurs 1,015 times in just the Old Testament. God is a communicator. 
And his word is powerful and performative. God creates with a word. He convicts and he comforts by his word. He shakes mountains and sends the rains by his word. He gives the law by his word. With a word, he tears down the proud and lifts the lowly. He extends mercy with a word. He pronounces judgment by a word. And with his word, he heals and destroys. So it's no wonder that Psalm 119 says, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Throughout all of human history, God has created, he's governed, and he's saved by his word. His word is powerful and performative like no other. And it's personal. God has visited us by his word. He has so infused himself into his words and his message that you can say, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. In fact, 109 times in the Old Testament, that exact phrase, the word of the Lord came. Genesis 15.1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. The word of the Lord came. First Kings 6.11, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. It said, concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, says this young prophet. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Ezekiel 1.3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. The word of the Lord came with such personal presence that it was as if a hand was on him. Jonah, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The word of the Lord has always been personal. And all that forms the backdrop to John chapter 1, verse 1. So let's read our text now. Uh, We're going to read the first three verses. I'm going to zoom in on just the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I began this sermon with a riddle. Might not do that again. I don't know. It was kind of fun. But John does not begin his book with a riddle. He begins it with crystalline clarity about who Jesus is. 
no riddles, no journey of discovery for the reader, no plot twist. John, who was a, a disciple of Jesus, he was a friend of Jesus, a dear friend. He had to go through a journey of discovery. When he met Jesus from Nazareth, he didn't know who he was. He didn't know, he probably didn't even know he was from Nazareth. Maybe his dialect gave it away over the first week because Jesus spoke with a dialect. But he didn't know that Jesus was going to be his savior. He didn't know immediately that Jesus was God. He didn't know that Jesus created John. It took a while. I don't know how long it took, but we have good witness that this book, this gospel, is one of the latest books written in the New Testament. And I think that John thought, studied, and prayed about what he learned about Jesus for probably 40 or 50 years before giving us this book, The Fruit of His Labors. And so he deposits the fruit of his labors for us so we don't have to go through that journey right here in verse one. His point is, Jesus is God. We can worship him and we must worship him. He just says it right off the bat. Now, I wanna build um, this sermon structure around just these three little verbs in verse one, the top two lines on your screen there. Three-letter word, was. It's a verb of being, a verb of existence. So we're going to look, using those three verbs, at three mind-blowing, staggering claims about Jesus. It'll be point one, the existence of the word, and the fellowship of the word, and the divinity of the word. Let me pray for the Lord's help. Lord Jesus, you said that you would send down your helper who would guide us into all truth. Guide us now from your word to you, the word and the truth by the power of your spirit. Speak to us now clearly and do what you do, which is create. Create in our hearts faith. In the name of the almighty God, amen. Amen. All right, point number one, the existence of the word. In the beginning, there's the, there's the verb, right? Was. In the beginning was the word. But before we even get to the verb, we've got in the beginning. And that is already a familiar start to a book. We've got two other books that start roughly the same. Genesis 1 starts exactly the same. In the beginning, God. And here we have, in the beginning was the word. But the gospel according to Mark, which incidentally, if this is the last gospel written, Mark was probably the first. Mark starts in a similar way. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, John would have been deeply acquainted with both Genesis and Mark. And whereas Mark says, here's the beginning of the gospel, and he looks at the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus's last three years, pre-crucifixion and resurrection. John says, yeah, that's good, Mark. I also want to give another angle. 
I want to talk about the beginning of the gospel as the beginning of the universe, not just the beginning of this earthly ministry. I want you to know that the starting point of the good news that you lean on went way back before matter existed. Because the gospel is not God's afterthought. He didn't see the problem of sin and get confused and go, oh no, we've got to come up with a plan B. This morning, we had to change around some songs and plan a kid's talk kind of last minute because when things change, us being human have to just roll with the punches. But the gospel is not like that. Jesus is not a plan B to the unexpected problem of sin. His word of salvation has existed before anything. So words are powerful. And this one little word was, it's meant to leave our jaws hanging open. John intends to open this book and instill in us awe. Because when Genesis 1 describes God creating the heavens and the earth, Jesus was there with God. Before matter existed, Jesus existed. Now remember, the person making this claim was fishing buddies with Jesus. What would it take for you to claim about one of your fishing pals that he is the uncreated essence of God from before anything. But that's what John's doing. And he wants you to begin this journey through his gospel, knowing that truth for certain, that this Jesus whom we love, the Jesus who died for our sins, he formed reality. He formed you. Now the I'm going to talk about grammar a lot today, guys. Grammar matters. Um, I'm like, sorry, not sorry about it. Um, the Greek word that lies underneath that English word was, Amy. It's very important. Because it doesn't mean that he was, but isn't now. What that, that grammatical construct of that word means is that he was, he is, and he will continue being. In the beginning was the word, now is the word, and for all eternity is the word. Only one person in the Bible fits that verb. And his name is Yahweh. He said to Moses, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. The first part, the first few words of John 1.1 1, 1 says, Jesus is Yahweh. It's the only explanation, but more on that later. Let's go to point number two. That's the existence of the word. Now let's talk about the fellowship of the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So we all know that God was in the beginning because Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before creation was created, God existed. He always has been. He has no start. And now after our first main point, after these first few words of John, we know that the word also existed before creation. But hear me carefully. John is very, very careful to not let us confuse exactly the word with God. 
God and the word are not entirely interchangeable things. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment. But he begins not by saying the word was God in those clear terms. He begins by saying that he was with God because John insists on a distinction of persons between the word and God. The word is co-eternal, like God. He has always existed. He has no beginning. But in some sense, he's separate from God. He's able to be with God. Now, again, the book of John was originally written in this language, Koine Greek. And there are a lot of ways in Koine to say that something is with something else. There's so many ways to say X is with Y. But this particular way that John chose, and he was very good at Greek, this particular way to articulate that the word was with God is really important because he used a prepositional construct of fellowship. In other words, when this exact grammatical phrase occurs in the New Testament, it always without exception means one person with another person. Because so far, in the, you know, in the beginning was the word. We don't know he's a person. But now he says, by the way, he's personally with God. The word of God is personal. He's a he, not an it. Furthermore, this particular use of the phrase with God is not so much emphasizing the location of the word, but the relationship of the word. God and the word have a unity and a fellowship. They're not just nearby. We could be nearby with lots of people we don't agree with. But even in English, we use the word with in that way. For instance, where's Catherine? She's with Eleanor. Or the captain, you know, leading a charge into battle. Are you with me? He means relationally. He means, do we have unity? Are we together on our purposes? And in that sense, the word was with God and is with God and will continue to be with God. There are not two powers opposed to each other before creation. Reality is not a dualism, a tug of war between good and evil. Reality comes from good, from two persons, at least so far. And they have a unity together. God and his word are united in will and purpose and affection and power. So what God loves, the word loves. What God does, the word does. And what God is like, the word is like. That's all packed in to that little phrase, with God. They use the gospel of John to teach, Greek student, to teach students Greek uh, in seminary as like the first because it's the easiest. It's the simplest Greek. It's also the most stunningly deep. And I mean, I, we've got lots of artists in the room. You'll know, um, if I said, give a talk for 40 minutes, any one of you could do that, I guarantee it. If I said, give a great talk in four minutes, the concision, the simplicity is more demanding. You have to be more careful, more precise. And that's what John is doing in this whole book. It's just stunning. Now, I keep thinking about this illustration that I heard from Tim Keller, um, just to give him credit. If you're like, whoa, great illustration, 
give credit to Tim Keller. Um, imagine that you lived your whole life. Uh, well, actually, I did. This didn't occur to me until just now. I did live my whole life at the foot of a mountain. Um, I lived at the base of Mount Baker, which is a volcano in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. It did smoke for a few years of my childhood, and we all freaked out and had an escape route planned. Didn't blow. But I lived in the you know, foothills of Mount Baker, a 45-minute to one-hour one drive from the summit. And I knew my little town well. I walked it. I, I knew where the casino was and the library and the high school and the post office, and that was the town. Um, <laughs> it was a small little place. But I knew it well, I thought. And then one day we went up to the summit of Mount Baker, and I looked down on my town from how many ever thousands of feet. And it's entirely reorienting. That's what John 1 is like. We think we know reality, but John 1 is the summit. And we, Christ takes us up there by his spirit, and he says, let yourself be reoriented to what reality is really like. Let the unity of the Godhead, the withness of the word and God, the preexistence of the word, let it sink into your heart and mind. The claim of this unity and fellowship is that God and his word have eternal intimacy. And true intimacy can only be the result of love. And loving intimacy is always accompanied by joy. So peeling back the curtain of God, what God is like before creation, taking us up to the summit of the mountain, we see that Jesus and the Father, the Word, the Father, were eternally wrapped up in the most joyous, loving, intimate relationship, full of joy you can possibly imagine. And all of this, this is the spillover from that. God doesn't need us. God didn't create us because he needed to be served or fed or prayed to or sung to. He created us of a superabundance of love and joy to invite us into the love and community that he is. That's why reality exists. It's so that as 1 Peter says, we might become staggeringly partakers of the divine nature that is caught up in the very love of the Trinity. So creation is the result of the incandescent joy, love, intimacy, fellowship, and unity eternally flowing between Father and Son, God and Word. Now, some modern scientists, not all, some claim that our existence is the result of cosmic accidents. Um, molecules colliding, life evolving mindlessly, impersonally. And as a result, everything that you experience and feel is basically an illusion or an accident. That's the claim. 
So if you're in love, uh, it's an illusion. What is love? But a weird chemical reaction going on in your brain. There's nothing true about love. Or if you're suffering, uh, suffering's just an illusion too, right? The universe is random. Entropy rules. Nothing matters. Or you can take God at his word that there's a beautiful mind behind reality. That all of this is the result of a superabundance of joy and love in the persons of God. That a divine nature with three persons in eternally perfect love and harmony designed you and everything and invited you to participate in his love. That's the reorienting view from the lofty peak of John 1. Reality is not cold, impersonal, and accidental. It's warm and relational because it's the loving, joy-filled, creative activity of God and the Word. At the heart of this text is not just some interesting abstract ideas then about God. Right at its heart, John 1.1 is an entire worldview. It's a new and a true way to see and understand and enjoy the reality that God created and to enjoy the creator of that reality. Accidents and cold, impersonal nature cannot sacrifice. They cannot give. They cannot love. They cannot serve. They cannot show mercy, but the word can, love can. That takes us to point number three, the divinity of the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. No clearer assertion of the divinity of Jesus could be made. The word was both with God and he was and continues to be God. Now there's no suitable illustration, no suitable analogy for how that's possible. The moment you try to illustrate it, you basically dip into heresy. (laughs) Um, And there's a great video about that. But (laughs) every illustration falls that far short that to even try to say, well, the Trinity is like an egg. No, it's not. The Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. No, it's not. But I can tell you what it's not like. It's not like me. God is not like me in this sense. I have one nature, mortal, human. And I have one person, John. I am one single, united nature and person. God has one nature, and that is divine. And he has three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So he's not like me in that he's got those three persons. In other words, God is triune. There's a unity of three persons in one Godhead. That's where we get the phrase, the Trinity. 
Now, John will deal with God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity much later in this book, and he will deal with it. But for now, he's concerned with the stunning truth that the word of God is God. And now, now we can begin, we can't understand it, we can't comprehend it, but we can acknowledge that if there are more than one person in the nature of God, how the word can be both with God and God. When I speak, my words are powerful, as we've talked about. When you speak, your words are powerful. When God speaks, his word is a person. It's amazing. (laughs) So when you put it all together, these three little clauses teach us that the word is eternally existent, uncreated. The word is a person. The word has fellowship and unity and love and joy and intimacy with God. And the word is God, one in nature and distinct in persons. Now, if you're one of the lucky ones that has Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door, um, they will probably be talking with you about this verse. They read it in their New World Translation this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Do you hear the difference? There's an indefinite article that they throw in there. The Word was a God. Now, if you remove the Godness of the Word, the unity of God and the Word in the single divine nature, the entire Christian religion falls. No, our entire hope is gone. Our hope is based on the fact that the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he hung on a cross to pay for our sins and he rose again for our justification and he is coming back. And only God could do that. If Jesus isn't God, we should all go home. So that's a sad and wrong translation. Um, They're generally very well-intentioned and kind people. Please be very nice to Jehovah's Witnesses. Genuine, like don't, we're not snarky. We don't make fun of people. We don't make people feel small. Invite them in for real conversation and open the Bible. But know with utter confidence that they are both profoundly mistaken and deeply misguided. Because John's grammar is surgically precise and it's abundantly careful. And he crafted the inspiration of the spirit. He crafted this clause to say precisely what he meant to say. And in Greek, it reads, the word was God, not a God. And he, pro- he crafted it in a way where we can't reverse that. You cannot say God was the word. The word was God, but you can't say God was the word. Just like God is love. Love is not God. That's how careful John is with his grammar. In other words, if John wanted to say that the word is divine, both a unity with God's nature and distinct in his persons, this is exactly how to do it. There's no other way. But you don't need to understand uh, Greek grammar. Um, Maybe just for Steve, you don't need to understand an Arthrus subset proposition predicate nominative constructs. 
to understand that the word was God. You only need verse three. Here's what verse three says about the word. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. All things is the biggest bucket and everything fits in it. That's what the word means. And if it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean anything and words don't matter anymore. Every created thing was made through the word. Everything that had a beginning was made through the one who had no beginning. Verse three proves that God, that the word was God. You don't even need the grammar. As we saw, verse one, the word was itself shows that Jesus is God. The word was God. So the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Muslims are wrong. Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is not just a good philosopher. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not a guru. He's not created. The man at the right hand of the father whose heart is beating right now and is ruling the universe created everything. Jesus is nothing less than the uncreated, eternal, creative word of God, one with the father in perfect unity, God himself, through whom the world was created. Now, the Jehovah's Witness error is historically new. The claim that Jesus isn't really God is not historically new. It's at least 1,900 years old. And that's why in the fourth century, the church came together and wrote something called the Nicene Creed. And it's, it's meant to encapsulate John's teaching especially because John is the clearest of the gospels about the nature of God. Here's the first two paragraphs of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. This is the confession of the church. If we don't have the godness of the word, we don't have anything. Jesus is God and we must worship him. And everything else in the book of John, everything we're gonna talk about for the next I don't know, year that we're in this book, it's going to flow out of this claim. And if we don't get it, we're not going to get Jesus. And if you dismiss it, you must dismiss everything that follows. But if Jesus is who John claims he is, and we must cling to every word from his mouth, we must watch his movements closely because he's no mere carpenter from the backwaters of Nazareth. He is the uncreated God himself. And everything he says and everything he does has a cosmic and eternal significance. And he will either be worshiped or dismissed, but there is no neutrality with Jesus. This does not leave us any wiggle room. 
No one can stand in between undecided. And by hearing this word, a new reality is created. Either we will be obedient creatures who worship our creator, or we will stand in opposition to him. There is no in-between. God's word is powerful. As I conclude, let me circle back to John's main point. His main point is that we can and must worship Jesus. To tease that out a little bit, his point is to awaken our faith so that we might worship Jesus as God. That's not an intellectual exercise. It requires faith from God. Now in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John gives him the purpose statement of his whole book, right? We usually do that in modern English books in the foreword or the preface. We say, here's why I wrote this. John does it in chapter 20 near the end. Here's what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, the book of John was designed to awaken and sustain faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited, serpent-crushing Savior of the world, and to believe that he is the Son of God, the Word made flesh. Let me conclude with just two implications of that. First, we don't get to dismiss Jesus. I'm going to just keep saying that. He's no mythological figure. He's not just a good teacher. He's very god a very God. Now for John, he was writing, I think to a joint audience of some Jews who he was trying to persuade to become Christians and some Christians who are new to this. Maybe they're Greek in background, maybe they're Jewish. The Jewish people need to know it's okay to worship Jesus, right? We believe in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And John says, yes, he is. And he's in three persons and you can worship Jesus and be Jewish. That's part of what he's saying. The other part of what he's saying to the rest of us is, you must worship Jesus. If he's, God, if he's your creator, you know, the Bible insists that we worship God primarily not because of his character, but because he created us. That's the first starting point. So by front-loading that material about Jesus, John's following the thrust of the whole rest of the Bible and saying, worship your creator be a good creature. So we can worship God, we must worship God. Second implication, if we worship the word, we must listen to his words. We must be people of the book. Now, I don't mean you have to like reading. I don't mean you have to have a really complicated reading plan. But we must take the Bible seriously. The Bible bears witness to Jesus from cover to cover, and we cannot know him without his word. God has ordained that our primary way of knowing Jesus is not dreams and visions and the Holy Spirit speaking directly to us. It's through a book. That's God's decision, and that's where he landed on. Now, he does speak in other ways, but everything that he says is to be weighed against the Bible, which is our ultimate 
an infallible rule of faith and life by which we measure all things to Christ. We must be people of the book. By saying that the word was with God and the word was God, John is insisting that we not separate speaker and spoken word. And similarly, while we do not worship the Bible, through it, Christ searches us and divides us bone and marrow. Christ does surgery on his people through his book and he heals us through his word by his spirit. Thank God. So we must not say, I follow Jesus, but I don't really read the Bible. The Bible shows us Jesus. How can you follow him? The Bible helps us draw near to Jesus. And Jesus will be worshiped, as he says later in John, by us abiding in his word. He says, abide in my word. And then he turns around and says, abide in me. What's the difference, Jesus? There is no difference. Abide in the word. Abide in the word. So let's begin this new year and this new sermon series together as a family with a renewed commitment to worship Jesus and to be people of the book. And may God awaken faith and sustain faith. Let me ask him to do that now as we prepare for the Lord's table. Father, we again praise you for speaking. You said that in various ways and in various times, you spoke through prophets in all kinds of ways. And now you've spoken your final word, who is Christ. Speak Christ to our hearts now. Awaken new faith and sustain the faith that you've given for his glory and for our joy. Amen.